welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. Welcome to Bridge the Divide. Um, It is a chilly, pretty chilly January afternoon, and we thought it'd be more fun to sit inside and record. So that's what we're going to do. It's too cold outside. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. We have... um, we have a guest today. We love to bring guests in. Sometimes we just, just to give us a little bit more information. We strive with Bridge the Divide to, to bring information. We want to bring different perspectives. We want to educate people. We want to just learn about things that we don't, that we haven't already learned about. And I have with me today, Reggie Jackson, who is, um, a renowned speaker. He's a historian. He's the head griot of the America's Black Holocaust Museum. He is um, a member of Nurturing Diversity Partners. So what Reggie basically does is everything. And he is here with us today. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Erica. Yes. Um, what what I wanted to, to do in thinking about bringing you here is kind of edge our way towards Black History Month. We um, we spend a lot of time talking about history in Bridge the Divide meetings. We try to connect with people like yourself who have lectures and seminars and teach us about history so that we can understand the things that we, you know, maybe misinterpreting, just things that we're missing altogether. And we thought that it would be a, a good idea to kind of bring you here and just, just teach us today. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I want to start out with just um, just have you introduce yourself, you know, with some more details and some of the things that you're working on right now. Sure. Um, I am the head griot for America's Black Holocaust Museum. Uh, the word griot is a word we use at the museum to describe the docents at the museum. So uh, the founder of the museum, Dr. James Cameron, was part of a group called the Old World Griots. Um, and it's a term that's used in the French-speaking part of West Africa to describe those people who are the oral historians, the keepers of the history. So he wanted the griots at the museum to kind of play that same role. It's a very important part of the tradition in West Africa. Uh, the griots are the people who are the keepers of the history of that community. So they have to know the entire history of that community, going back to the basic foundations of that community. They have to be the nosy people in the community. They have to be the ones who are the most up-to-date on happenings within the community. If a family is about to have a baby, they have to make the announcement before someone else does. Otherwise, they're doing a very poor job as a griot. (laughs) Uh, And they're also a really important part of advising the leaders of the community as well. So it's an honor to be a griot. Um, I've been a griot since the summer of 2002 when I first went to the museum to volunteer and they trained me as a griot and I became the Saturday griot at America's Black Holocaust Museum beginning that summer. I was there literally every Saturday from the summer of 2002 
through the summer of 2008 giving tours for okay. people from all over the world. And that work um, as a volunteer has continued, uh, even though the physical museum closed in 2008, I've continued to do the work uh, and follow in the footsteps of Dr. Cameron, who became a, a very close friend and a mentor for me. And that work has, has grown into me uh, doing a lot of work outside of the, the scope of just the museum. Um, you know, uh, since a small group of us got together about um, almost nine and a half years ago or so to talk about reestablishing the museum after it closed, figuring out how we could continue to do Dr. Cameron's work, that work has grown. Um, in a variety of ways, we started a virtual museum to give the museum a presence again, an online museum mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that has uh, over 5 million visitors a year from over 200 countries now. Uh, the architect of that was my good friend and business partner, Dr. Fran Kaplan. Mm -hmm. uh, Fran and I have been working together now for almost a decade. And we decided about a year ago, just a little over a year ago, that we were doing this work uh, on behalf of the museum mm -hmm. and, and, and some other entities. And we said, let's do this work uh, aligned with issues of race and racism and, and bring people together to have conversations and working towards reconciliation and a healthier community. Uh, let's get those audiences that we're missing out in the suburbs mm -hmm. and in the rural communities around the state. So that's what we've been doing. We've been traveling around the state. Uh, Fran and I are going to be going up to Warsaw together soon. Uh, we've been to La Crosse, okay. uh, Kenosha, Racine, Burlington, um, a variety of places around the state uh, here in southeast Wisconsin as well as other places. Having conversations with people about racial topics and really bringing people together to have conversations that are healthy conversations, productive conversations. And as a result of that, I've done a lot of public presentations in a variety of places. Uh, and it's given me a profile that I'm now considered Milwaukee's segregation expert. I, um, I concur. In case anybody was wondering about my personal opinion, yes. Okay. And so I've, I've learned a lot about segregation the last few years, and I've talked about it. I, I do a presentation called The Hidden Impact of Segregation. I've done it over 60 times now in different mm -hmm. libraries, churches, businesses, colleges, universities. It's a topic that people are really, really uh, interested in. Uh, and it's been an eye-opening experience for me learning about the history of segregation and particularly how the Milwaukee metropolitan area became the most segregated. And so, you know, that's one of the topics that we do a lot of work on. But we also do work on how do we bridge, you know, the, the differences between communities. Right. Uh, we've we've been able to, to bring a, a phenomenal group of 23 facilitators, including yourself, I of know, course. they're pretty good people. Uh, I like them. <laughs> to, yeah, together to assist us in, in this work. And we do a lot of facilitated dialogue with uh, different groups, uh, church groups. We're working with the Wauwatosa School District. Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot of spaces that we do work in. Mm -hmm. And it's been, to me, just an incredible journey to get to this place. I can remember one of the last conversations I heard I had with Dr. Cameron uh, in the, in 2006 before he passed that June, um, well, he was asking me, you know, Reggie, are you gonna you know continue to do this work? Do you enjoy this work? And I'm like, well, of course, mm -hmm. Dr. Cameron, why would I stop? Uh, and so you know, here I am, all of these years later, and. Uh, the work is just as rewarding now as it's ever been, um, and even more so because I've been able to get into so many spaces that I never expected to get into. Right. I've been welcomed with open arms into communities that people warned me wouldn't want to have conversations about racism. You don't go to the suburbs talking about 
race and racism. <laughs> you don't want to go to these rural communities. People are going to run you out of town. You're going to need a bodyguard. And I said, well, I have this this beautiful uh, 70-year-old Jewish woman right. who's my uh, bodyguard. You don't want to go up against Dr. Fran. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's been it's been a wonderful uh, journey. And, and it's it's something that I want to continue to do. Um because it's 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 changing who we are as a nation, right. and that that was Dr. Cameron's mission was to change us, right. and I'm very happy to be a part of that. And now we have we've had you out for as uh, with Bridge the Divide, we've had you out for um, um, a lecture series, and and hope to have you out for more because there's just so much information that I don't know how it's all packed into your head, but it's there, and we just we kind of sit and absorb it as it all comes out. But I want you to tell me. Most of the most of the um, the speaking engagements that I hear you speak at, there's you're always mentioning Dr. Cameron. And can you give us some more history about who he was and then your relationship with him? Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Cameron, uh, James Cameron, uh, was born in La Crosse, February 25th, 1914. Um, his dad was a barber. And in the early 1900s, almost every barber in the country was black. And La Crosse was a mecca of master barbers. And so barbers from around the country would travel to La Crosse to to learn under the master barbers. And that's how he ended up coming to uh, La Crosse, Dr. Cameron's dad uh, and and mom. And so he was born there. Uh, The family moved around quite a bit. Um, They spent some time in Alabama. Uh, when he was about eight or nine years old, um, and, and something really tragic happened while they lived in Alabama. He was forced to witness a lynching of a black man. A group of white men grabbed him and forced him to go and witness a black man being lynched. So this eight-year-old kid has to see this horrific scene. Little did he know that uh, just eight years later, uh, as they were living in Marion, Indiana, his his dad had you know moved on. So he was living with his mom. Um, he would be involved in a lynching there. Uh, in fact, that lynching that took place on August 7, 1930, is the most famous lynching photograph in American history. Um, the lynching um, that he survived miraculously, his two friends, Abram um, Smith and Thomas Shipp, um, did not survive the lynching. They were mm-hmm. both killed on that day. There's a famous photograph taken by a local photographer, George Breitler, which became kind of a viral sensation back in the 1930s. It was shared with people around the world. Um, so it became a very, very famous photograph. Uh, many people have seen it. It's been in many movies. It's been misidentified almost every time it's been used in a movie. People think that it's in the South. I was going to say, uh, you said Indiana. This yeah. is not Mississippi or Indiana. Right, North Central Indiana. And so the lynching that he survived uh, really played an important role in the rest of his life. Um, you know, he talked about surviving the lynching and how he survived. Uh, you know, he was taken out of the jail. Um, and he was beaten. He had a rope around his neck. They were taking him uh, around the corner from the jail where the, the courthouse was uh, to where the lynching tree, his two friends were hanging there. Mm-hmm. And he thought that that was going to be it for him. He thought that his life was ending at that moment. And he said a prayer, closed his eyes and thought that that was going to be it. Uh, fortunately, he said um, that suddenly this crowd, which has been very, very loud, became very quiet. And he heard a voice that said, leave this young man alone. He had nothing to do with these crimes. And they let him go. He staggered back to the jail, and the jailers eventually took him to a neighboring uh, community jail for safekeeping. And he was tried um, a year later 
as an accessory before the act of manslaughter. Uh, his two friends, Abe and Thomas, had um, murdered a young white man by the name of Claude Dieter, oh, okay. who was actually a good friend of, of Cameron. Uh, and so he ended up being convicted and was sentenced uh, to four to 21 years in the penitentiary and um, spent that four years in penitentiary and was forced to leave the state of Indiana when he got out of prison. Okay. But that year that he was waiting for the trial, he met someone who changed his life. Uh, the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Bradley, uh, was kind of keeping an eye on him as he was awaiting the trial. Mm-hmm. And so this young man who had survived a lynching was befriended by a white man and his wife. And he uh, allowed this young Cameron to leave the jail and run errands for him. Uh, he also allowed him to come and, and help the wife with chores around the house. And he helped to t- teach the children, you know, things like riding their bicycles and things of that nature. So he became very close with right. the family. And, and he had all of this hatred in his heart for whites because of the lynching that he had survived, that his two friends had been murdered at. And in that realization that these people loved him. Uh, and Sheriff Bradley treated him like a son was enough for him to transform himself into a person who realized that hatred was bad for you. Oh, boy. And so he he became a different person as a result of that experience. Okay, okay. And let's, um, let's take a break, uh, get some commercials in here, and then we'll come back and talk about how you met Dr. Cameron. Sure. Before the break, we were talking about um, Dr. Cameron's kind of change of heart in in meeting different kinds of people after the the lynching and how that changed him. So how did you get connected to him? Well, I first met Dr. Cameron in in 1994. Um, I just moved back to Milwaukee about a year and a half before that from California. And I'm driving down the street and I see this building that says America's Black Holocaust. I'm like, hmm. Seems like an interesting place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went inside and uh, met Dr. Cameron. He was um, the only person there. Uh, he gave me a tour of the museum and, and told me the story of the lynching he survived. And um, there were many photographs of the lynching victims that were there. Um, and so I spent about four hours with him that day, um, just soaking in everything, listening mm-hmm. to him. Uh, purchased uh, some pamphlets that he had written, purchased some books that he was selling. And um, I knew on that day that I wanted to come back and, and help help this man at some point. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, eight years later, 2002, that I uh, had some time off from work and I uh, went to volunteer um, my first day off and uh, became one of the griots at the museum. And by the end of the week, they said, oh, you're on your own. You can give tours. And I gave tours and they probably weren't very great tours, but I got better and eventually became the head griot for the museum about a year later and started to conduct uh, the training for the other griots at the museum. Right. And that was that was how I met Dr. Cameron. Okay. Now, I, I am not from Wisconsin. So I think by the time I moved here, the, the actual building had already closed. But I have been online and just volumes and volumes of information I don't I don't believe that I've gotten through everything there so how how did you come to 
getting all of that information online, you know, keep the museum alive online. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the the physical museum was kind of the, the conduit for the, the virtual museum. Okay. Uh, Dr. Cameron started the physical museum um, in 1988. Um, and, and the genesis of the museum was a trip that he and his wife, Virginia, took when he was 65 years old. Um, they were devout Catholics, and they went on a trip to the Holy Land with their church. Wow. When they were in the Holy Land, they visited Yad Vashem, the Jewish Holocaust Memorial. And um, he says that they toured that facility and they saw the, the horrific things that happened to Jews uh, throughout Europe under the reign of the Nazis. And, and as they were leaving, the last part of Yavashim at that time was a garden called the Garden of the Righteous Gentiles. It was a garden designed to honor all of those non-Jews who had assisted Jews to escape the Holocaust. And he says as they stood there in the garden, um, he told Virginia, he said, Virginia, we need a museum like this in America to tell what happened to blacks Mm -hmm. and all of those freedom-loving whites that have assisted us during our journey. And so he started the museum, and it it stayed open for 20 years before we ran out of money in 2008, uh, two years after Dr. Cameron passed. And so when uh, I was called by Virgil Cameron, Dr. Cameron's son, about a year after the museum closed, and and he said, you know, there's a group of us that are trying to figure out how to open a museum or continue to do dad's work. And he said, are you interested? I'm like, of course. Mm-hmm. And so we came together and we had a conversation at, um, at Fran Kaplan's house um, and just kind of threw out some ideas. And eventually those ideas grew into uh, her idea of saying, well, why don't we create a museum online? Uh, since we don't have a building, let's be a museum beyond the walls. And so we started uh, that museum beyond the walls, a virtual museum, uh, which is at abhmuseum.org. Uh, we launched it on uh, Dr. Cameron's birthday, February 25th, uh, 2012. And it's been very successful. Uh, millions of people visit it. And I know that you haven't read all 3,200 pages of exhibit material that's there. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you've done nothing else. Nope, not quite. <laughs> so there's a lot of information there on a lot of different yeah. topics. Uh, you know, there's a, a memorial to lynching victims that we have on the website. There's information about Dr. Cameron's life, uh, including the work that he did in Indiana when he came back, um, opening up branches of the NAACP in the most clan heavy state in the country, which Indiana was in the 1930s, uh, becoming director of civil liberties in the state of Indiana as well. And then his journey to to Milwaukee in 1952 and made it his permanent home. And, you know, there's a lot of information. We, we, we want people to understand that what we call the Black Holocaust is an ongoing event. Mm-hmm. And so we have a section called Breaking News where we keep people abreast of things that are going on around the country that they may or may not be aware of that are related to, to race relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of stuff there. Um, and it's a, a place that, you know, educators have used as references for a lot of projects with their students. A group in Germany actually adopted one of our um, exhibits, our exhibit on the history of Jim Crow segregation. And they actually use it in, in the textbooks and the classrooms in Germany to wow. teach uh, American history. Okay. Okay. I like it. Now, now the next transition is from virtual museum to this wonderful building let me see corner of fell phillips and north is that yes. the right place okay yes, yes. we, we want to get that open and go in and visit <laughs> there are apartments above too mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so what i think last night it must have been there was a um an article about chris abley 
and mm-hmm. and funding. So mm-hmm. what what's happening next with that? So um, Chris Abley has has taken some of his personal funds and he's he's basically said that he will create a matching uh, donation. Uh, up to $100,000 for every donation made to the museum uh, up until Dr. Cameron's birthday, February 25th of this year. And so they launched the the advertisement of that um, with public service announcements to let people know that, you know, this is an opportunity for you to make donations to the museum Mm -hmm. um, to help make sure that the museum will be sustainable moving forward. Uh, People aren't uh, aware of how expensive it is to to have a museum and to make a museum sustainable. And so these are part of the efforts that are ongoing to continue to raise money. Uh, The museum space, uh, the exhibits are, are completed. Um, they just haven't all been installed in the space yet. Uh, okay. the, the new building uh, is part of a development. Uh, Melissa Goins company uh, created this building, which they call the Griot Apartment Buildings. The top three floors are apartments. Uh, the commercial space on the first floor is being leased uh, as a new home of America's Black Holocaust Museum. And, you know, we're excited to be in a new space uh, right on the on the on the, the footprint of the old building mm-hmm. is where the new okay. building was built. So we're excited about it. Um, people keep asking me well when is the opening <laughs> date uh and i keep telling them uh, uh, i don't know right <laughs> it'll be sometime it soon <laughs> so it, it, it should be sometime fairly soon though yeah, that works that works and and like we said before whenever you have um a lecture or a seminar you're always talking about history you you have to understand the history how are you going to do anything else going forward and one of the things that's of that was I guess it's of interest to me is the thought of Black History Month, which is supposed mm-hmm. to be um, February every year. And um, I have the information that it was started in the late 1960s. And there's a, a there's a, um, a I think he was a do- had a doctorate from Harvard. And that's the person that started it. And so tell me about Black History Month. What is it? <laughs> So Black History Month began as Negro History Week in okay. 1926, February ah. of 1926. Okay. Uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, created the uh, celebration. Uh, he's Harvard-trained historian. Uh, I believe he was the first black to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. Um, and so he looked at uh, the portrayal of, of, of African people and, and their children and grandchildren in America, and he said that, you know, we don't, really tell people uh, a true history of these people. We mm-hmm. don't talk about the contributions that they've made to not only America, but uh, the, the world in general. And so he said, what we should begin to do now is to collect the evidence and then gather that evidence and begin to teach it in the schools. And so he said, uh, I'll, I'll choose the month of February, not because it's the shortest month of All the right. year. <laughs> I'll choose that month because it's the month that um, Frederick Douglass was born in, as well as Abraham Lincoln were both born Ooh. in February. Okay. And so he chose February for that specific reason. And the celebration, this this week-long celebration, Negro History Week, continued uh, into the 1960s after um, um, Dr. Woodson had passed away in the 1950s. And um, in the late 60s, they changed the name from Negro History Week to um, 
to Black History Week okay. uh, in 1976, because the nation was celebrating its uh, bicentennial birthday, uh, they decided to extend the um, celebration to a month-long celebration just for that year, 1976, um, and it became uh, Black History Month. Uh, and it was so successful that they said, well, let's let's continue to have it be uh, a month-long celebration. So it's been a month-long celebration since 1976. Okay. Uh, there is an association for African, the study of African-American life and history, uh, which is an organization that, that um, Dr. Woodson started many years ago, which still is kind of the gatekeeper of uh, Black History Month. Okay. Um, they issue each year a theme that they suggest people uh, use to celebrate uh the year and it's it's still a very relevant um, celebration. Uh, the only issue I have with it is that I think people have lost sight of what Doctor Woodson wanted when he began it. He wanted it to be a temporary celebration. He said, okay. "Once we get to the point where we're teaching these things in school, we won't need this celebration anymore." Ah, um, and unfortunately, <laughs> when he passed, there. yeah, definitely when he passed, he was very, um, you know disappointed that we were still having the need to have this celebration and to share this history. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that's happened is people have lost sight of the purpose of the mm -hmm. celebration, um, that it's a celebration of the achievements of African-Americans. Um, and, you know, it's very difficult for young people in particular to maintain interest in it because most people, when they celebrate it, they celebrate it and talk about the same people every they year. They sure do. You we know. have more than three heroes. We had um, at the NAACP Freedom Fund last year, our speaker was Xavier Rainey, and he was so, it just, it, it was really made me laugh. He said, I really don't need to have a Black History Month to have you, um, to have you repeat my martyr's words back to me, you know, mm. that that's, and that's what people are doing. And there, there are only three black people in history. Here they are. There aren't any more. Right. <laughs> there's right. no more innovations. There's no more right. culture. There are no other artists. So mm -hmm. yeah. 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 You know, there's a broad amount of information that people could share during black history month. Um, and, and I, I've always believed that, in order to, to make children interested in the celebration, because, you know, they've heard the, the Harriet Tubman story and Dr. Right. King and mm -hmm. all of the same people. Mm -hmm. And in order to engage them in the conversations, you have to broaden the conversation. And the tool I used to use when I was a teacher uh, was to actually find um, history that they could associate with okay. by showing them the role that children played in history. Uh, for instance, during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Birmingham campaign that Dr. Cameron led in 1963, I would show them images and, and film footage from the Birmingham campaign, and I would ask them to pay very close attention to what they saw in the videos, and then we'd have a discussion about it afterwards. So i say, so what are some of the things that you saw? So they would mention a variety of things, but eventually uh, some student would always say, well, I saw a lot of kids, Mr. Jackson. I'm like, oh, you saw kids. What were the kids doing? So we get into a discussion of the role that the kids played uh, in the civil rights movement, the campaign in Birmingham and other places. And I told them, I said, listen, these young people risked their lives. Um, they were able to do something that their parents couldn't do because their parents are risking losing, you know, their jobs and other right. things. Right. And, and they had the courage to stand up and fight for themselves and, and show that they had that power. And I said, you can do the same thing. You have to think of yourself in the same way that they did. And it really kind of transformed the way the students saw that particular history. They began to see themselves in that history for the first time. Okay. All righty, let's take another break. And then after the break, um, I'd like to see what we can do about now. We've talked about some history, so let's talk about some present day. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. 
without your history, how do you know where you've been? How can you make sure that you're moving forward? Um, it's we have to understand it. We have to learn about it. We have to relearn about it, apparently, because we've we've missed so much things that aren't in our textbooks that that aren't taught to us in the classroom. So how do you connect or how do you um, discuss the connection between what we learn when we get all this this history caught up that we've missed and what we do next? what the go forward plan is. Well, I've I've always firmly believed that in order to plan for the future, you have to look at the issues that you're working on and look at how those issues developed. Uh, The development of those issues give you the background that you need to work on solutions. And so uh, I believe that the the best way to learn how to deal with some of the problems we have aligned with race in our country is to look more closely at the history of how these things have developed. Um, For instance, looking at the history of how segregation developed will Mm -hmm. give you a good idea about why Milwaukee's metropolitan areas are segregated. It didn't just happen by accident. Uh, There was a great deal of intentionality um, that led to the segregation. And so when you use the tool of the historical lens, it gives you a much broader understanding of the problems that you're dealing with. And so then you can begin to have much more productive conversations about how to move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that a lot of the work that, that, that people around the country do in terms of trying to work towards uh, racial healing and reconciliation of these things aren't as effective as they could be because people don't get enough of the background mm-hmm. to, to, to help them launch their efforts moving forward. But, you know, part of what Dr. Fran and I have done and continue to follow in the footsteps of Dr. Cameron is to use that historical lens to show people that that there are things that happen that directly relate to today that had you known these things, you would have a different perspective on who we are as a nation today. Mm -hmm. And so we use that perspective to kind of launch people into conversations uh, that become, like I said, much more productive conversations because now you're speaking from the perspective of not being a person who's lacking the the knowledge to understand how we got to to these places, you understand very clearly how we got here. Mm-hmm. And so once you understand how we got here, then you can begin to work with people. Uh, you can begin to cross some of those barriers that mm-hmm. have been put in place artificially uh, that prevent us from having really, really uh, productive conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people are very afraid of talking about issues of race and racism. It's, yeah. a, it's a, a topic that, you know, certain words just really turn people off. But I think there's there are ways that you can have those conversations that lead to transformation in the hearts and minds of people. Uh, and I've always believed very firmly that, uh, you know, a lot of the problems we have are not uh, directly related to individual acts of, of racism and discrimination and prejudice. They're, they're institutional mm-hmm. in nature. So it's embedded in the institutions. The outcomes of institutions are are related to the history of those institutions. So when we look at the disparities in healthcare, we look at the disparities in the criminal justice system and in so many other places, education, they're directly related to the, the, the past history. And so when you look at those things from that perspective, you're able to understand like, okay, so this is a much bigger issue than we thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to change the institutions, change the way that the institutions do what they do. And it's not an individual uh, bigot that we have to worry about so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to me, the way to get to that place is to talk to people within those, institu- within those institutions and have them analyze how the institutions do what they do and why the outcomes are what they are. Mm-hmm. And then develop uh, processes 
to change the way that those uh, outcomes uh, take place. And so really it's about changing people's hearts and minds, getting them to a place where they recognize that these disparities exist, why they exist, and then talking about, okay, what can we do different? What can we do that we haven't done before that would make a difference? And, and it has to be an effort that's a combination of groups of people. It, it has to be cross-racial. You know, Dr. Cameron always, one of his favorite phrases was that we as a nation have to live up to the ideals of the founding fathers and we have to become uh, what we promised we would be, a single, uh, a group of people that are one single and sacred nationality. He said that's what America should be. And and that includes people of all groups. And so that that's kind of the work that I do. I believe that it's uh, it's incumbent upon all of us to begin to to cross those barriers, um, those artificial barriers, to begin to work with people that maybe we're not comfortable working with, that maybe we haven't had a lot of contact with. Um, it's very important to, to get everybody on board because in the end, all of the efforts that that we that we work on to kind of get to this point of healing and racial reconciliation are things that are helpful for everybody in the community, for right. all of us in, in the United States. It's not just to help blacks or to help Latinos or Asians or whomever. It actually helps everybody. When you look back at the Civil Rights Movement, those things that came out of the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, the Open Housing Act, all of those things, they, they help everybody in America. It's not just they were designed for one specific group of people. These efforts lead to improvements in the lives of everyone in in the country and th- and they're not easy steps to take whether you're trying to start the conversation or whether you're the person that thinks they're ready to sit at the table and be a part of the conversation so part of what bridge the divide tries to do we're based here in cedarburg we're trying to reach out to ozaki county and having that conversation we believe is very important getting people to the table And sitting at the table when the conversation gets a little bit uncomfortable or then it gets a lot uncomfortable and saying, I know, but can you get you got to sit here. Let's sit here. Let's sit in it because we're trying to do it as a community. It's not just if I am the only black person that's in the room when we have one of our monthly meetings. I'm not talking about something that is only going to help me. This is the community. It's going to make all of us better people if we can figure out how to make this work, how to get this thing happening. So um, it's it's just a you keep plugging, keep plugging at it. We've <laughs> we're I think we're just about a year now. Yeah, I think we've been up for just about a year and and people show up and and people are ready to try to be a part of the solution and that's a, it's a great feeling when we can get everybody in the room and yeah, that, that, that's the way the process has to work. You know, uh, Erica, one of the things that Fran and I hear a lot is, you know, you guys are preaching to the choir. <laughs> and, and I always respond in the same way. That's perfectly okay because the choir keeps getting bigger that's and bigger right. and bigger sure and do. bigger all the time. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's what people have to understand. This is very difficult work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conversations are difficult. The process of moving forward is difficult. It requires a level of patience. Mm-hmm. It requires an understanding that you're not going to transform uh, things in a short period of time it's a it's a it's a lifelong process that we uh, have to go through as individuals um, and it's a process that has to to get you in spaces that make you feel uncomfortable sometimes uh, you have to learn to be comfortable uh, in the midst of discomfort yes uh, and and when you can do that when you can begin to then listen to people because to me that's the key is to to create a space where you listen to people, where people can be open and honest about how they feel 
and they can express, you know, their lived experiences and, and show people why they feel the way they feel about specific topics. Uh, that is when you get into the this phase where the conversations really, really make a difference because mm-hmm. you begin to share those personal, personal anecdotes and, and stories that that directly align with how you feel the way you feel. And, and then uh, you begin to accept that by uh, having those conversations being listened to. Mm-hmm. And now you become a person who is willing to listen to others. Right. Uh, and that that's the process. It's it's not always easy, but it's, it's very productive when it's done in the correct way, I think. Right, right. Thank you so much. Now, at one of our breaks, as I was um, letting everybody in the room know how I was almost Billie Holiday, I mean, thanks to my dad's record collection, yes, records for any young people listening, they did exist. Um, I I loved listening to Billie Holiday. And one of the ones that's, it's a very impactful, it's kind of hard to listen to, even with the music, the the tones that clash is Strange Fruit. And um, you said that there was a connection with Strange Fruit and Dr. Cameron. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the song Strange Fruit actually came from a poem called Strange Fruit. So uh, the lynching photograph that was taken of Dr. Cameron's lynching um, in 1930 uh, was spread far and wide. Uh, a young Jewish man saw the photograph and he was so touched emotionally that he wrote a poem called Strange Fruit. Huh. And this poem uh, was eventually turned into a song uh, that was made famous uh, by Billie Holiday. And so I tell people that every time I hear that song, I think of Dr. Cameron because uh, had it not been for him surviving that lynching, I would have never known the connection between that song and and his life. Uh, And, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's strange fruit um, talks about, the you know, how often uh, these lynchings took place and how public they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that this young man who wrote the poem really was, was touched by um, this image that became the most famous lynching photograph in history in such a way that he wanted to kind of leave his thoughts on what it made him think when he saw the image of the lynching in Marion, Indiana. Mm. And, uh, you know, so it became a very famous song. It's been covered by many, many people, Nina Simone, and mm-hmm. many others have covered the song. It's a beautiful song uh, about very tragic part of American history. Very painful. We can't escape it. It happened. We can't escape it. We can't ignore it. We just have to learn about it and kind of push through it. Thank you so very much for coming. Give us um, contact information again for America's Black Holocaust Museum. Yes, uh, the museum's website is abhmuseum.org um, there's also a Facebook page uh, for America's Black Holocaust Museum as well uh, you can go to the museum's website um, there is um, places on the website and many places where you can uh, make uh, donations to the Dr. James Cameron Legacy Foundation the nonprofit organization that is the umbrella organization running the physical museum uh, as well as um, you know over overseeing eventually the the other things that the museum would be doing, the community outreach programs mm-hmm. and things of that nature, uh, as well as the virtual museum. So, you know, it, it's it's a place to go where you can learn quite a bit about American history that you didn't learn in school. Right. Uh, and it fits perfectly well into what Dr. Cameron wanted us to do. Uh, to build towards racial reconciliation and healing. That was his mission for the museum. Right. All righty. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you to all the listeners. Um, Bridge the Divide. We have a a presence on Facebook, Bridge the Divide Community. We have um, our lovely 
producers here at CPL Radio. Um, we have our podcast up on SoundCloud, and uh, we would appreciate you taking a listen if you have a chance. Show up uh, first Mondays of every month at the Cedarburg Public Library for our meetings. Next one is February 4th. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.